Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. So again, our, our title of our message is The Lord's Servant, Victorious in Suffering. Um, if there's anything that can symbolize the Christian faith, it really is, if you think about it, the cross. That's the single best symbol that we have to kind of give, okay, here's our faith in one picture. It's, it's the cross. And um, Pastor David brought a few coloring pages of the cross today for, for kids. And so um, if you're here, take one color one yourself. There's no age limit. But also take one for, for the kids. And I don't know, we might just post like a PDF of it on Slack so kids at home can go ahead and color. But it's the cross. And, and the important thing is for us to understand the significance of the cross. It's become, you know, a symbol to identify maybe a specific uh, faith type, a f- specific demographic. Um, but it's almost, the symbol itself needs a little bit of context to understand. We might think of it as um, in something that's a little bit antiquated, like really, we don't see a lot of crosses on churches these days. What exactly does that mean? It's almost like the, the save icon on your computer when you're, like, you're working in a document. It's a literal floppy disk, and you're like, how is it still a floppy disk, the save icon? Why doesn't it just, maybe just have a word that says save, because I don't think people know what floppy disks are anymore. But in the same way, I mean, over time, we can lose the significance of this logo, if you will, the cross. I was in the greeting card aisle yesterday at, at Ralph's, and you could tell which cards were the Christian ones because you could see just a little cross on it. And I'm thinking, man, do we understand the real significance of this picture of a cross? Because if we dig a little bit deeper and understand, really think about it, the cross is an execution device. It's a, it's a torture device. And when we look at the cross, we should think of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. And that's why it's a good picture of our whole faith. Because without the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, we really don't have a faith at all. We just have words, we have good platitudes, and we have um, maybe good advice on things to live. But if we don't have the cross, we don't have the power of the gospel message, what we would call the gospel message. And today, we're going to examine, really, uh, the cross, but not the the picture itself, but rather, Isaiah is going to give us a picture, um, if you will, not not of the cross, but of the suffering of Christ and the things that Christ endured to help us understand the basis and the foundation of our faith. In many ways, the chapter that we're approaching today, Isaiah 53, is a mountain peak of what we would call messianic prophecy. Prophecies and and, and predictions and descriptions of the coming Messiah who will deliver us from our sins, whom we know and have identified in messages past as Jesus Christ, who was sent by God the Father to be the atonement for our sins. And so Isaiah 53 is really just this atom bomb of a chapter for us to read. And um, 
I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm probably not going to do the whole chapter justice. We could probably easily spend six months in this chapter, but if we're going to finish the book of Isaiah before next Christmas, we will we'll continue on and we'll, we'll um, try to do the best we can in the next 35 minutes or so. But what do we already know about the Messiah from former prophecies of Isaiah? Because really in Isaiah 53, we get a culmination of all the details of the Messiah, who's called the suffering servant, um, that Isaiah has described before. But So what do we already know from chapters we've studied in this, um, in this book of Isaiah, this prophecy? We know from Isaiah 42 that um, the, the suffering servant will bring justice to all nations. He will make all things right. He'll make all things good. We know in Isaiah 49, the suffering servant's role, the Messiah's role, is to bring Israel back to God in relationship with God. But today, we're going to examine the role of the suffering servant in suffering and the extent to which he is going to suffer and the success, for, um, the success, the outcome, the successful outcome of his suffering to redeem us from our sins. And so today, if there's anything we should remember, it's that the sufferings of this servant, namely Jesus, is the sufferings are sufficient for us today and are actually good news for us today. And we're going to learn how in the next uh, coming verses. But why don't we go ahead and, and dive in and read Isaiah chapter 52. Um, We're going to kind of uh, finish up this chapter starting in verse 13. If you want to drop down there with me. Isaiah's prophecy says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And this is, if you will, God speaking of his servant, describing him for us. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root, Out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. First major um, point that we're going to explore is how the servant astonishes many. We'll keep coming back to this theme of this one servant and his, the effects of his life and his obedience to the Lord on many people. And so the first thing we should see is that this, this servant is astonishing the entire world. And therefore, we play almost like the role of spectators. We're We're not doing anything. We're just watching this unfold. And how Isaiah is telling us to behold the servant and to understand what is going on. And so to 
to kind of summarize the whole servant's ministry and suffering, Isaiah kind of starts at the end and says, here's the end result. In verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And some of your, um, uh, some of your translations for the very first line, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Um, some of your translations might say that my, the servant will be successful or will, will, uh, will have success. So in other words, whatever the servant does, he is going to finish complete successfully. You know, we're, we're having a lot of graduating classes these days, whether high school or college or, or junior high, and the, the idea is for them to be successful. And, you know, in America especially, we have a plan, you know, um, get higher education, get a good paying job, and, and start working your way up the ladder in this. We probably wouldn't give them the advice of this path, which is to be successful through in, intense, excruciating suffering. It's a different path than we're, what we're accustomed to because we see these, this suffering start to be described um, in, in verse 14. Yes, the servant will be successful, but he's going to go through a grinder to get there, if you will. And he describes the servant in verse 14 as his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. It was marred so that you couldn't even tell this figure, this person, this... this um, um, a person who bore flesh was a, a human. It was beyond human semblance. And it, we, we quite see this literally when the body of our Savior, Jesus, is nailed to a cross and beaten and, and crucified. And so this sort of exaltation we see will really affect the entire world. And people will see the significance of this um, incredible rise to exaltation from the pit of suffering. And therefore, in verse uh, 15, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Some translations actually say, So shall he astonish many nations. And um, the sprinkling indicates kind of... Um, uh, kind of a ceremonial, like you're, you're now part of this community who's seeing this take place. And so we see that he's affecting many nations with this, and kings shall actually be speechless seeing this unfold because it's so significant. And they'll actually gain understanding or wisdom from just the sight of this, is that I, I would never have imagined I would see something like this. But despite great humiliation, we are still promised that the servant will be successful. The servant will be exalted. And by this, we're meant to see the power of the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is just kind of a, a word picture for the power of God. His might, what He does, the, th the way He makes things right, the sheer brute strength of God to make this a successful ministry of the servant. Observe chapter um, 52, actually, verses 9 through 10, if you want to just go up a little bit with me, and it talks about the arm of the Lord um, redeeming 
his redeeming God's people, we see in verse 9, Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see, uh, uh, shall see the salvation of our God. So this is God, you know, if you will, rolling up his sleeve and showing his strength by this work that he is doing. And God is saying, I will bring you comfort in this way. If you noticed, and um, we, we kind of signaled it when we were teaching through these chapters, in Isaiah chapter 40, there's kind of a break in thought. We're, we're, it almost um, signifies signifies the second half of Isaiah's thought as he's prophesying. In Isaiah chapter 40, it begins, comfort, comfort my people. And he realized there's a significant change in tone. I mean, yes, of course, God offers mercy and he offers, extends grace throughout many chapters in Isaiah. But God's specific focus in this whole chunk of the book is saying to comfort my people. But little do we realize what that entails of God to comfort His people and to redeem them from the true captivity of their iniquities and their sins, God is going to send His servant to, uh, servant to great suffering. And therefore, there's a sense in which people who un- see this unfold aren't going to get it. And we see that in uh, Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so the arm of the Lord is, has been revealed, and yet Isaiah, the, the prophet, is kind of interjecting this, well, a lot of people aren't going to see it or believe it when they do see it. It's almost inconceivable to Isaiah's hearers the, the path through which this servant is taking to redeem God's people so that he, he says it's, it's, it's almost like a futile task to explain this to someone. And so, we understand from this that our our disbelief is really a sign of our our deeper deeper issues. And that Isaiah is really, in in saying this, telling us to believe what what he is telling us. Because we're naturally disbelieving, especially when it comes to things of God. And part of this message leads people to disbelieve. But in John chapter uh, 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus found that as he was ministering to people, he found disbelief kind of everywhere. That was, if you will, the, the constant ring, the constant mood of his ministry. That was the um, regular occurrence that was going on. Is that in, in, I'll just read it. In John chapter 12, verse 37, um, though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he quotes this verse that we're in right now. Lord, who has believed what he, had, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We have Jesus in the flesh, God in human flesh, the ultimate manifestation of the deity performing healings, and doing these wonders, and people see it, but they don't understand, they don't believe it. But in addition to this this hurdle of disbelief, this lack of faith among Isaiah's hearers, um, we also see that other aspects of the servant, other attributes of this suffering servant, are kind of a, a disservice also if we're trying to give him mass appeal. 
We see in verse 12, uh, 2 that he had... He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He grew up out of, you know, abject poverty and um, uh, no real estate. And he had no beauty or former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This is not necessarily referring to the disfigured appearance that we see in the a few verses above, but rather it's, it's kind of a lack of visible majesty on a person. It's like if you see a, a celebrity in the wild and you see them in real life in, without makeup and you're like, oh, I thought you were taller or I thought you, you would have looked bigger. That was kind of the effect of Jesus taking flesh and coming and living among us. People would be like, is this, this really the promise of I don't. I thought he would be taller, you know, if you will. And so he's actually not desirable. The, the suffering servant is not a desirable person. He's not easy on the eyes, if you will. He's not uh, a celebrity we would look at. He wouldn't be someone who would, um, we would want to interview on a talk show or, or uh, grace the cover of a magazine. And even in the case when Jesus was on trial for false crimes committed against him, and Pilate well, really wanted to release him, and he said, okay, well, how about I set it up this way? I'll get this murderer, this other man named Barabbas, and I'll sit him next to Jesus, and I'll say, okay, who do you want me to release? I'll re release one of these. And given the option between Jesus and the murderer, people said, specifically said, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. Just release to us Barabbas and send Jesus to his death. And they specifically said, his blood be on us and his children. They actually did not only not want him, they, they, wanted, they rejected him so much that they were willing to incur the blood guilt upon themselves for this man because they did not want him so much. And that's part of the deeper human condition in that we don't want God in our lives because of our prideful hearts, because of our sin. We might think for some people, you know, they have a natural affinity for spirituality or, or they naturally gravitate toward religion or to Christianity in particular. But that doesn't really match up with what the Bible tells us, that all people are gone astray. All people do not seek God. It's really God who seeks us. And He seeks us through the suffering servant. But later, of course, we should remember the even though Jesus came lowly and had a human form and was really not someone to desire during his first coming, we understand that in glory he appears in his full majesty, which signifies the success of his ministry. If you'd like to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 through, 26, uh, through 16, we see a, a mighty, mightily different Jesus who's described here. Verse 13 says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
And so when we describe Jesus here in Revelation, John's describing the prophecy that God is showing him, that God revealed to him. We see a mightily different person. We don't see the the lowly, disfigured person that we see, and we realize there's been a change. And so we should remember that there is going to be a change. There's going to be deeper suffering, but then there's going to be great exaltation for the suffering servant and the end, for our Lord Jesus But before we get to that place of high majesty, we are taken to deeper levels of humility in this prophecy. And we'll see, which is our second main point, that the servant suffers for many. The servant not only astonishes, becomes a spectacle for many, but he also suffers intentionally for many people. In verse 4 through 9, we read this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made a grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the servant suffers for many. But we understand that it's not just a useless suffering. He's not just attempting to be an an archetype or an icon of suffering so that we could say, oh, poor suffering servant, poor Jesus. He suffers for a reason. And it's not merely an ideological reason or a political policy, but the servant carries our griefs and our sorrows as we see in verse 4. The servant isn't a reflection of our greatness of a people. We, don't, you know, we want, if we have a king or we have a president, we want him to be a representation of how great we are. But the servant is really a contrast from, from, from that. And it, he's saying, I am going to fix your problems. And that's why I am so good. And I'm going to carry your sorrows. So it's not a reflection of the greatness of his people, but he's actually being the answer to their destitute destitute state of sin and grief and sorrow. And so we see this in the ministry of Jesus on earth, that his sufferings went deeper than mere sympathy or, or empathy. His sufferings went deeper. We see in Matthew Um, chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, how Jesus came low and He addressed the suffering of people. Um, In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, if if you've turned there, uh, if if not, I'll read it. Um, This really was fulfilled when Jesus was healing people in His ministry. And it says there, that evening they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our griefs or bore our diseases. That's kind of an approximate translation of griefs and sorrows. So we see that Jesus bears our griefs, our infirmities, and our sorrows during his earthly ministry. That grief and sorrow we have on earth, it really manifests in physical ailments. And that's why Jesus was healing them, because he was showing them, I'm the true healer. I will not only heal your physical ailments, but I will forgive your sins and heal your heart. That's what he was showing us through these miracles. And in healing their bodies, he showed himself the answer to their underlying condition, their sinful state, and their need of a deliverer, their need of a servant, a perfect servant of God, who would be able to redeem them. But in verse, uh, the end of verse 6, we see the, kind of an interpretive um, thing for this site from Isaiah. He says, we, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, his, the sympathy and the, the ministry of healing people and his sufferings and his bearing in, in grief was so deep that it would lead a person to think that he was being punished by God himself, that he was being stricken by God for something that he did because his burden and his grief was so great. But verse 5, verse five, Isaiah corrects that idea that it wasn't his wrongs that he was being punished for. It was for our wrongs, our iniquities that are affecting them, him in this way. And so notice here that Isaiah is giving us these images and then he's interpreting them for us in a deeper way. And he doesn't want us to misunderstand the sufferings of the servant. He's not suffering for his own wrongs, for his own sins. He is sinless. He's suffering for our sins. And therefore, in, at the end of verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that, what was the result? Brought us peace. And with his wounds, there's a contract, wounds, we are healed with his wounds. And so the end goal of these sufferings is not um, anything else but the peace we need with God. We have a lot of talk uh, nowadays with division and, and reconciliation and how we can bring about peace and justice. And it's true, we need healing in, Amer- in America, but the healing that we really deeply need is with God. We need to heal that relationship with God. And it's not God that did a wrong thing to us where we need to forgive Him for something. It's we who are the ones who have offended God's holiness. And therefore, we need peace with God. Most idols of the pagan world are idols that people would have to propitiate. In in other words, appease because the idols maybe did something or they were in a bad mood and the people were like, I hope you will like me now that I've given you the sacrifice. But in the actual biblical worldview, we are the ones who are in a bad mood, who have offended a holy God. And we are the ones who need to be reconciled through a power out of ourselves because of the things we've done wrong. We need the correction of the shepherd because all we like sheep in verse 6 have gone astray. We need to be brought back into fellowship and reconciliation with God before we can make any other attempts at reconciliation with others. And so... 
we continue on to the sufferings of the servant, and we also see the servant's demeanor in verse 7, that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he didn't even open his mouth. And this, these, these few verses right here show us the sinlessness of the servant and the huge contrast that what is happening to him is actually unjust. He didn't deserve these things. And we see that he was being accused and he was being afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And we, we have that, uh, really, this great statement in 1 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 23, where, where Peter is giving Christ as a, a great example for even how we should suffer in life. That when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was made fun of, when he was um, accused of wrongdoing, when he was really being joked about, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges, to the, him who judges justly. And so Christ doing nothing wrong, leading no, giving people no reason to treat him this way, yet continues to humble himself to the point of death. And again, Isaiah kind of asks a rhetorical question, verse 8, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He's saying, who, who considered that this was really the reason this suffering servant was going through this? And again, Isaiah is saying, this is what we see, but here's what's actually going on under the surface. And it's not immediately apparent by the sufferings of the servant what's going on, but it's through the will of God, through a divine revelation, that Isaiah is saying, this is what's actually happening. And it's greater than we could have even believed. It's greater than we could have imagined. But if we were to just stop here and say, well, the, the servant suffered for you. It's, it's pretty bad. He suffered through a lot of pain. You know, amen, God bless you, know, we'll have a great week. That, what would that do to us? That would just make us feel terrible. Like, this person suffered, went to the tomb, and died unjustly for me. Like, where, where do we go even from there? I think of the, the there's a short story by um, um, James Joyce called The Dead, and it was a, a woman who had a suitor who really wanted to court her, and it was like said in Ireland, so it's, it's very sad. But he, he goes and, and see, he tries to see her, and he, she, she turns her away, or she turns him away. He would not even come out and see him, and eventually he starts to walk home, and he gets trapped in a snowstorm and, and actually dies. And she lives for the rest of her life with the burden that someone actually died trying to, trying to meet me. And if we didn't have a, a full context of what was going on, we can... We, this sort of suffering that the servant goes through on our behalf would really just guilt us for the rest of our lives. We would, if we don't understand how this actually applies to us, how this is good news, we'll just live in guilt for the rest of our lives. But to this concern, we have these last three verses, which tell us that the servant is not only suffering for us, the servant is justifying us. And it's actually very good news for us. In verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Just stop there real quick. Scripture tells us over and over that God does whatever He pleases. And then if it doesn't please Him, He doesn't do it. 
Simply that. And so for the God to actually say, or right here, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, we see that this is something that God wanted to do. Just meditate on that as we continue to read. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So one thing we learned, first of all, is that the suffering of the servant was in God's plan and out of God's good pleasure. We might think, who would take pleasure in details like this? What kind of God, who even in Ezekiel chapter 33 tells us he doesn't even delight in the death of an evil person? How can God take pleasure in something like this? Well, the answer is that God was taking pleasure in the act of justification. In this chapter, um, specifically, there are many standout verses, many, many memory verses you guys have probably already remembered, if you don't, haven't remembered this whole chapter. There have been many songs written about Isaiah 53. But I would argue that Right here, we've actually approached the richest verse in this passage, at least theologically, when we read verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is everything, really. This is the doctrine as it's taught of justification really fleshed out in the book of Isaiah. The Messiah of his own agency suffers and sees this through to the end so that he can declare many righteous. That affects me. That affects you. That affects those at home or on their smartphone or tablet. Many are the beneficiaries of the One. This is huge. And it's good news. Because when the Messiah bears our sins and our transgressions, they're born away from us. They're not brought back to us so that we can say, oh, I don't know what to do with this. This is a burden too heavy to bear. They're brought away from us to the cross and finally to be read of permanently forever and to show us in perfect standing before God. By one righteous person, Jesus Christ, many are made righteous, those who believe on him. And to be sure, the, the suffering of the servant could only have been accomplished by someone who was righteous. Not just any warm body, not just any human sacrifice would have done, but the perfect life of Christ grants us his righteousness. Almost as though it was like an inheritance. That when Christ died, we inherited the riches of His righteousness and the relationship, 
the perfect relationship he had in perfect reconciliation with God. Because Jesus was counted among the transgressors, we can be counted among the righteous. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, um, if you'd like to turn there with me. Second Corinthians uh, 5:21. For our sake, Paul writes, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's incredible that the perfect Son of God would suffer. The fact that His righteousness is a transferable thing to us. It's incredible. Martin Luther had um, a very good thought on this. Martin Luther the Reformer says, because He bears the sins of the world, talking about Christ, His innocence is pressed down with the sins and the guilt of the entire world. Whatever sins I, you, and all of us have committed or may commit in the future, they are as much Christ's own as He Himself had committed them. In short, our sins must be Christ's own sin, or we shall perish eternally. Christ is the only one who can bear that kind of sin. The, the transgressions we've made, the wrong things we've done against God, and He's the only one who can rid us of it. And to be certain, I mean, if we just look at our culture today, we're, we're in a crisis of guilt, if you were. We're going back to the past and we're unearthing really heinous sins in many ways. And it's like, well, as Christians, what do we do with this? Well, I think the, the problem is that the Bible tells us things are actually much worse than that. It's not collective guilt from our country, but it's all of us in our natural state who are being weighed down in life by the unbearable guilt because we have sins we cannot get rid of. And the miracle of Isaiah 53 and the good news within this chapter is that our guilt is transferable. Like, not even gift certificates are transferable, but somehow our sins and our guilt are transferable onto Christ. And that most fatal debt can be taken away by the body of Christ who bears our sins to the cross. Let me return real quick to 1 Peter chapter um, 2. Sorry, I should, probably should have told you to hold your finger there when we quoted it earlier. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 through 25 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see what happened there? By Christ's death on the cross, not only are our sins forgiven, but we are fundamentally changed not to live under the burden of guilt, not to live solely to sin and to um, go after our own pleasures, but that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So it's not just a, a one-time thing, what Christ did for us. It's a complete redirection of our entire lives. That suddenly, we are a new person and we're desiring righteousness. And the, the, 
the Christ whom we were shown before and whom we did not desire at all, suddenly we're desiring because God has come and intervened when we believed. By His wounds, you were healed. We need an overseer of our souls. We need someone who can bring us into right standing now and in eternity when we die so that we wouldn't spend eternity being judged for our sins and the things we've done wrong. We need that overseer of our souls. This is very good news. I won't read um, the whole passage because of time, but in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35, it's something you can, you can read yourself, but it's an incredible story of the... the Wideness to which God has expanded the gospel message from a cross on a hill in Israel to us to the far reaches of the earth. Because in this story, Philip, who's one of the deacons of the early church, he's sent by God to the desert where there's really nothing going on. And he sees suddenly a, an Ethiopian um, eunuch come up who's just kind of like a, an official from Africa who was visiting Jerusalem. And what's fascinating is that this Ethiopian um, government official just happened to be reading from Isaiah 53. And he's looking at the sufferings that are going on here. And just like Isaiah had to interpret it for us a little bit more, he's reading these sufferings going, who is this? Who is this person? And Philip was able to share with him what's called, in, in, in the book of Acts, he shares with him the good news of Jesus. And that's just a great illustration of how the good news in this chapter is good news for us all. No matter where we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter the bad things we've done in the past, the cross of Christ and His suffering is actually good news to us. And it's good news to us for um, three reasons. And we'll, we'll kind of list these and then we'll close. Isaiah's message right here is good news to us today because Jesus can bear our guilt. As we already visited before, we're, we have a lot of guilt. And if you don't feel it, you're not feeling correctly. That we, we are real sinners. And once you realize that, you, have, you realize your need for a Savior, someone who can redeem you from the pit you've dug yourself into. And so Jesus can bear our guilt, in which case we're freely offered redemption because Jesus bears those unbearable things. But for many of us who already know this, remember all of that that entails, that Jesus for us is not only a one-time belief, I, I prayed the prayer, maybe I walked the aisle, but it's a daily um, rest we have in Christ. Remember that He bears your griefs and He bears your sorrows. He comes alongside you when you're deeply despondent and He empathizes with you because He endured suffering. But secondly, Isaiah's message is good news for us because also Jesus can justify us before God. He not only gets rid of our sin, but He makes us in perfect standing before God. By the righteous servant, many are declared righteous. And thirdly, we should know that Jesus will succeed in what He does. Jesus will succeed in what He does. 
He will succeed then. He did succeed then, paying once for all sins on the cross and through the resurrection. The resurrection was really the success story. It was, this is successful. I rose from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying. But even today, Jesus promised us, us to keep us. That if we really do believe in him, he'll keep us righteous until the day we die. And we can stand in judgment before God and God can say, well, you're forgiven. You're declared righteous because of what Jesus did for you. And he watches over our souls. And so we should remember these things as we study this chapter and as we even meditate on this even more during this week. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this precious passage. And we know, Lord, that this isn't just a book that has no relevance to us. This prophecy that was written over, what, 1,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago, isn't just something that's an antiquated document, but Lord, it applies very, in a very real way to us that even today, Christ can shoulder our burdens, our, our illnesses, our iniquities, our griefs. And that Lord, for us who don't even have a relationship with God, Christ can reconcile us. And by His righteousness, we can approach God and through no other righteousness. And so Lord, I pray that we would see that and that Christ would be magnified in us and that He would be exalted in our own lives. And that Lord, He would be exalted in our conversations we have with family and friends and even in the own conversations we'll have after service, that He would be big among us in His rightful place and majesty. And so Lord, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.